0: Well, several weeks ago, our family visited Fort Abraham Lincoln State Park near Mandan. We took a tour of the, the Custer House, that replica of the home of General George Armstrong Custer and his, and his wife that they inhabited a few years during his military command in that part of the country. As we were taking the tour, the, the comment was made that General Custer was the second most photographed man in the 19th century and so of course that prompted the question of who was the most photographed man of the 19th century. Before the tour guide answered that question my mind came up with a couple of likely options. The first person who came to mind was Abraham Lincoln. He certainly sat on a prominent stage during that era and everybody to this day knows his name. Someone else being a a North Dakotan Someone else who popped into mind right away was Theodore Roosevelt. He rose to fame and prominence during the last quarter of the 19th century as cameras became more commonplace, so that might be a good guess. But the answer that the tour guide gave surprised me, enough that I had to do some fact-checking because I wasn't sure that he was right. The most photographed man of the 19th century was born Somewhere around 1817 or 1818, on the eastern shore of Maryland, the child of a slave, it has long been assumed that his father was white, probably his mother's owner. He was given his mother's last name of Bailey. While still an infant, the child and his mother were forced to be separated, as was common practice for slaves in those days because they were livestock after all. The child bounced around from slave owner to slave owner as he grew. Some were relatively benevolent, and some were extremely harsh. But when he was about 20, he happened to meet a young, free, black woman named Anna Murray. And Anna Murray arranged for him to come into possession of a sailor's uniform and protection papers and identification that actually belonged to a free black man to serve as a cover to get him to New York City. So he boarded a train in Baltimore in full uniform and with fraudulent papers in hand, and within 24 hours, he was safe in the house of renowned abolitionist David Ruggles in New York City. 11 days later, Mr. Bailey and Miss Murray were married, and initially they took the last name of Johnson. A couple of years later, they officially assumed the last name of Douglas, Frederick Douglass, smuggled to freedom in the North, went on in his early 20s at the age of 23 to give his first official speech in Massachusetts. And Douglass would later be known as perhaps the most influential of abolitionists in our nation's history and the most photographed person of the 19th century. He worked tirelessly to bring about the end of slavery. As Americans, we have a curious history with slavery. Slavery wasn't just racism, it was an economic system. It wasn't just disdain or hatred for a specific group of people, it was a force that directed and that ordered our society and Frederick Douglass committed his life to fighting slavery in all of its forms, to pushing back against economic systems of oppression, cultural forces that led to hatred. But slavery wasn't something developed by Americans. It's been a reality throughout human history, a reality that some cultures have embraced and some just tolerated and others fought against. And we certainly see slavery in the Old Testament. The biggest and most familiar example is when God's people fled to Egypt to escape the famine, and Pharaoh dies, the good Pharaoh dies, and a new Pharaoh sees an economic opportunity with all of these foreigners living in his kingdom. Slavery took on different forms throughout biblical history, depending on your location. The the first century understanding of slavery was Different from Frederick Douglass's perspective, and different from the version with which we are familiar, we see a couple types of slavery in the scriptures. Some of it is based on national conquest, imperialism. One country would come in, take captive either home or as they occupied that land, would take the native residents as slaves. So that was common. Uh, Much of it was actually just a means of dealing with indebtedness. It's important to recognize that when we look at a snapshot of this encounter that we're going to see in our gospel today in the New Testament, slavery was just a reality. Rather than a system of debt collection like we have today, they had their own system that involved some degree of servitude, some degree of slavery as part of a repayment plan. In our text today, Jesus is going to use two different words, both the idea of service. And the idea of slavery as images to help us see what he came to do and ultimately what we are called to. As Jesus often does in his teaching, he employs a set of images to drive home a specific point. Sometimes it's bread, sometimes it's agriculture, the parable of the sower, sometimes it's marriage like we have heard in past weeks and in our text today. That imagery is slavery. I'm going to read from Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. This is God's word to us. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he said. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you were asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. But Gracious God, we pray that you would speak to us through your word today. We're grateful for the access that we have to the scriptures, and we pray that we would hear, and we would believe, and we would obey what you have said. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text begins with what is, again, a bit of a transitional verse. I started reading in verse 32, but I want you to make note, if you have your Bibles, make note of verse 31. Verse 31 is sort of this verse that could belong with the text before it or the text after it. In verse 31, it says, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. We have witnessed this recurring theme throughout the gospel that Mark is emphasizing for us, that the kingdom of God is, as I've said many times in this series, the kingdom of God is upside down that it doesn't operate according to human custom or logic, that God writes his own rules for his kingdom, and he isn't bound by what we think makes sense, by what we see with our eyes. And that becomes clear again today. Verse 31 is this verse of transition that takes us from the hard teaching that we heard last week regarding how difficult it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God And it serves as the transition point into what Jesus will say in our text this week. We find Jesus and his disciples on their way to Jerusalem. One thing that's worth pointing out that will help with our reading here is that the word disciples, even in this very text, is used in two different ways. Oftentimes we think of the twelve when we see that word disciples, but here it's used both to reference specifically the 12, but also the larger group of followers in a more generic sense. These are all followers of Jesus who are walking with him on the road to Jerusalem. These are people who have been captivated by his teaching, who have committed themselves to following him. But we do have this specific group of 12. So in verse 32, we see that they're all walking down the road with this mix of astonishment and fear and jesus pulls aside the 12. he's going to prep them for what's about to happen our text today consists of this teaching directly to the 12 along with two follow-up conversations one with james and john alone and one conversation with the other 10 when they come in angry about what happened in the previous conversation. And I think there are several things that become pretty clear uh, through this series of connected conversations. And the first thing is this, that Jesus came primarily to die. Jesus takes the twelve aside as they're walking to Jerusalem, and he says, starting in verse 33, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest's ...and the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death... ...and will hand him over to the Gentiles... ...who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Jesus, once again, uses sort of his preferred title for himself. I think it's some 80 times in the Gospels, if I remember right... ...that he uses this title, the Son of Man. There's certainly a bit of mystery as to why he selects that title to refer to himself... In one regard, it emphasizes his humanity. At the same time, it connects him with God's larger redemptive plan. This is a title that comes out of the book of Daniel. So it connects him with the larger prophetic plan of what he was going to do and accomplish that we see in the Old Testament. This is the third major prediction of his suffering and death that we find in this gospel. We have one in chapter 8. One in chapter 9 and now this one in chapter 10. If you remember back in chapter 8 with the feeding of the 4,000, I made the comment that that passage sort of serves as this transition point in Jesus' ministry as he begins to focus his eyes toward Jerusalem. And that's becoming even more clear in our text for today as we now have the third prediction of what is going to happen to him. And this is the most detailed of those predictions. Think about the detail that he gives us, that he will be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that they will condemn him to death, that they will hand him over to the Gentiles, that he will be mocked and spit on, that they will flog him and then kill him. And thanks be to God, he will rise again three days later. Great detail, great precision about what would take place as they arrive in Jerusalem. Interestingly, Mark doesn't give us any detail about how the twelve responded to these predictions. Based upon what you know about the disciples, think about all that you know about the disciples. How do you think they responded to Jesus' prediction? Based upon their past track record. How would you assume that they received these predictions from Jesus? Well, thankfully, Luke gives us the details of how they responded. Luke chapter 18, verse 34, says, But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. Surprising, right? The disciples don't get it. And as much as Jesus has tried to make it clear and prepare them, they just don't understand. But again, we do well to remind ourselves that we need to read these words graciously. Knowing that we see the full story. We have the whole thing laid out clearly for us. Everything for the disciples was veiled. It'd be foolish and probably even arrogant of us to assume that we would have reacted in any way differently than they did. But what's significant about these initial verses in our text is not the inability of the disciples to understand what Jesus said, but the profound truth that this is the very reason. This journey to Jerusalem is the very purpose for which he came. Many inside and outside the church today view Jesus primarily as a good teacher, as a role model. In fact, there are many churches that have all but marginalized or set aside Jesus' function as sacrifice for our sin. They'll talk about Jesus' death in terms of martyrdom, for his justice initiatives, for his being a social revolutionary. And those things are true. Jesus was a social revolutionary. Jesus did bring justice and healing everywhere he went. He elevated the social value of everybody that he came in contact with, but Scripture itself doesn't present Jesus as a martyr for doing good in the same vein as Martin Luther King Jr. or William Tyndale, but as one who came to die in the place of another, as a substitute. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, Or as John would say, behold, the Lamb of God. That's not a cuddly lamb. That's a lamb on its way to be slaughtered. Who takes away the sin of the world. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or as Isaiah says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our, for my iniquity. Jesus came to die. He came that he might go to Jerusalem. Everything about his ministry, in fact, everything about the history of God's people in the Old Testament, was pointing to this journey to Jerusalem. Jesus came to die. Second, we see in our text, humanity is perpetually self-focused. I don't think I have to even say this. I think we know this to be true. We see it in our own hearts. We see it in our world. Jesus makes it very clear in bullet point format what must take place. And the disciples don't understand, and and we see that very clearly in the verses that follow, starting in verse 5. And in these verses, James and John actually reveal a whole lot about you and me, about our nature. Verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Think about the audacity of those words. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Mark is emphasizing something here for us. Following each of the two previous predictions in chapter 8 and chapter 9, there were also similar types of encounters. James and John asked for a blank check. Jesus, do for us whatever we ask of you it shows how clearly they don't understand what's happening. They're still under the illusion that their trip to Jerusalem, that this journey that they're on might actually result in their honor, in their elevation to glory and power. Jesus was clear about what was going to happen in Jerusalem, but they, just like us, have selective hearing. We only hear what fits our agenda, what reinforces what we already believe to be true, by nature we are self-focused and everything we hear is filtered through that lens. There is sort of implied in this request by James and John a confession that Jesus is the Messiah. It's an important note to make that he is the one who would rule in glory And yet, right after Jesus' clear and precise prediction of what was to come, they are quick to ignore all of that and jump right to what it means for them. It's the most human thing imaginable, isn't it? Will they be on his right and on his left when he rules? But again, let's be careful that we're not too critical. The disciples were, they were sure of their eschatology. They knew what was going to happen. They had read and studied the prophets. That the Messiah would come and would rule that he would ascend to David's throne. That his kingdom would never end. That was the promise that God gave to King David. So this is a perfectly logical question. If Jesus is the Messiah and if God's word is true that the Messiah would ascend to David's throne... Then wouldn't it be logical that these two two thirds of Jesus' inner circle would be enthroned next to him in his glory? It serves as a twofold warning for us. That the first one is maybe a warning, maybe more of an observation, and the second one is critical. The first warning is that we hold on to what we read in prophecy with humility. Never before in the history of God's people. Even those walking alongside Jesus have human beings been skilled at prophetic interpretation. It's never happened in history. So why would we think that we are? Just a a kind of a side note, an observation. The second warning is critical. That we recognize our own tendency toward self-promotion. Immediately following Jesus' honest and transparent instruction on what is to come, these two disciples jump right into vying for position and power. Our sin nature is ruled. It's controlled by self-interest. By what can I get out of this? What does this mean for me? When I pray for my colleagues, for fellow pastors, one of my main prayers is that God would protect them from pride, from self-interest, It's such a temptation for all human beings, but especially for those of us who stand on a stage. Humanity is perpetually self-focused. What these disciples are overlooking is that before Jesus conquers death, before he is raised to the right hand of God, he will first become the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied about. Look at how Jesus responds to this self-focused request in verse 38. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus throws two different metaphors, two different word pictures at them to help them understand what is in front of them. Cup and baptism. I want to address These metaphors quickly, starting with the latter. If if we read Peter's words about baptism in 1 Peter chapter 3, we see a curious connection between the flood from Genesis 6 and the doctrine of baptism. If you need to be reminded of this, go back and listen to the sermon that I did, it seems like forever ago, from the beginning of this sermon series in Mark, January 17th, somewhere around there. Baptism is about dying and being raised to new life. That's what the flood was, right? Judgment, condemnation, followed by new life, hope. Paul says this in Romans chapter 6. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Death is central to our understanding of baptism. Perhaps the more clear of the two metaphors, though, is the cup. This has rich Old Testament context. If you're a note-taker, I know some of you like to take notes. If you're a note-taker, I'm going to give you three verses to jot down that give you more of the depth of what I'm talking about here. Uh, Psalm 75, 8. Isaiah 51, 17 and Lamentations 4.21. I'll say those again. Psalm 75.8, Isaiah 51.17, Lamentations 4.21. There are at least a dozen more that I could give you, but those three cover it pretty well. This idea of the cup comes up throughout the Scriptures to refer to the vessel of God's wrath against sin. And of course, we know in the Garden of Gethsemane Jesus prays, and and what does he pray to the Father? Take this cup from me. Jesus is being handed the cup of God's wrath against the sin of the world, against your sin, against my sin, and he tells these self-promoting disciples, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink this cup? Of course, we know that they will go on to suffer much for the gospel, for the sake of Jesus as Jesus says you will drink the cup you will be baptized but here's the beauty of this passage for those of us who read these words on this side of the cross we know that this cup of wrath isn't the only cup in the story that there would be another cup that would come later right a cup full of the blood of the lamb Paul gave this cup a name. He said in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing, which we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Jesus continued on to Jerusalem, and as we know, he would drink every last drop from that cup of wrath. And he's given us, in return, a cup of blessing. Filled with his own life-giving, sin-forgiving, death-defeating blood. Thanks be to God. That brings me to the final point that I want to share with you this morning. And that's this. When we get to sort of the meat of what Jesus is saying. The gospel frees us to give our lives away. The good news of what Jesus has done sets us free to give our lives away, and, and brings, us, brings us to that, that beautiful imagery of slavery. The disciples become indignant, angry at James and John when they hear about their question. And so Jesus uses the image of servanthood and the image of slavery to drive home a firm description of both the power of the gospel and the life of one who has been set free from the curse of death. Verse 43, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus uses these two different words here to describe what the gospel produces in us. The first word is servant. Literally, it's the word deacon. This word has an element of willing servitude. It's not speaking of a servant who has no choice in what they're doing, but as one who willingly chooses to to serve, to give their life away. One who is so captivated by the mission of their master that they serve willingly. And the second word is the word slave. In some translations, bond servant, This is a much stronger word than the simple word for servant. It carries with it the assumption that this person isn't necessarily voluntarily submitting to this servitude. That they aren't free to go do something different, but are choosing this lot in life. No, there's an element of force involved here. And I think that the way that Jesus pairs these two words together in our text is beautiful. Verse 42, he says, You know, you know how the world operates. Those who are first lorded over those who are last. And then this powerful statement, but it shall not be so among you. In my kingdom, Jesus says, the servants are great. The slaves are first. That's the power of the gospel. This is the transforming work of Christ and his people that we are free. We are free to become slaves. That we are free to set our own personal rights and our own agendas aside because our entire life is in service to the one true King. We are free to give our lives because Jesus gave his life for us. Think about the language that we see in verse 45. Jesus has, has used servant and slave imagery, and, and the text ends with this statement, that Jesus gave his life, think about that phrase, gave his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave his life as payment to set us free from our slavery to sin, our slavery to the expectations of others, our slavery to fear, our slavery to money and prestige and power. Jesus gave his life to to set us free from spending our time fretting over what's happening in Washington, D.C. Jesus gave his life to set us free in order that we might become servants and slaves. See, here's the thing, the, the, the slavery for which Jesus came is unlike the slavery that Frederick Douglass fought against. Douglass worked that all people might experience political and economic freedom, that they might be self-ruling people, that they might be guaranteed the rights that our Declaration of Independence says are for all people. That's not why Jesus came. Scripture overwhelmingly teaches that Jesus didn't, set you free so that you could have the right of self-determination. In fact, Scripture says you are not your own. You've been bought at a price. Paul repeatedly refers to himself as a slave of Christ. That's the work of the gospel. Recognizing and understanding and believing that true life, true freedom comes not from being first and from having worldly freedom, but from giving your life away for God's kingdom. It's what we were created for. It's what we were ransomed to. Too many Christians today think that they are free, but instead are really just enslaved to the world, chasing happiness, chasing money, chasing experiences, chasing political majority and power. That's not freedom according to God's definition. That's slavery. True freedom is found only in giving your life away, in self-abandonment, not in self-promotion. True freedom is found in being a slave. God's kingdom is upside down. True freedom is found in being a servant under the control of your master, Jesus Christ. We are all enslaved. Every human being is enslaved. The question is, who is your mind and who is your heart captive to? There is one who is good. One who purchased you, who gave himself for you. The the good news sets us free to give our lives away for the good of his kingdom and for the good of our neighbor. By God's grace, may we be set free from the world, set free from our sin nature, so that we would be slaves of Christ. Let's pray. God, we come to you today and we confess that your word is true. That just like the disciples, we are focused inward. We're concerned about ourselves, about what we can get, about what's in this for us. We confess that we don't love you with all of our hearts. That we don't love our neighbors as we ought. We thank you for that good news that while we are self-focused... While we were your enemies that you sent your son to die for us in our place. We we praise you that he drank the cup of your wrath against sin in full. And that he offers us a cup of blessing instead. A cup in which we receive the promise of forgiveness of sins and new life. God give give us faith to believe all that you've done for us. Lord so captivate us by your gospel that we give our lives freely to you and to your church and to our neighbors. God, that's so counter to our nature. But we know that your gospel is powerful and life-changing and purpose-altering. Lord, make us servants. Make us slaves of Christ. And as Jesus said, slaves of all.